need to uh, <clears throat> excuse me. I need to begin this morning uh, by asking for your grace uh, and issuing um, my apology if I come across as uh, different than than normal here in the pulpit. I just learned this morning that the wife of one of my oldest friends and the best man at my wedding has passed away. She was 42 years old, and uh, I'm feeling a lot of things this morning, um, and praise God, the gospel works when you're grieved. The gospel works when you're on top of the world, and the gospel works when you're walking through the valley, and Jesus and His grace are sufficient for me, uh, and certainly uh, for the Landis family as they navigate through this. Uh, and I'm not telling you, as followers of Jesus, anything that you don't know. Many of you, th- this year, have walked through seasons of great loss. Many of you right now are navigating through relational strife and family issues and financial difficulties. And friends, the good news is that the good news works. Jesus is on the throne and he is mighty to save. And so uh, let's take some time now and go to the Lord in prayer uh, and recommit our hearts to him as we prepare to hear from his word. Father, we, as we approach your throne with confidence today, don't, don't come boldly. We certainly don't come before you boldly because we are worthy to do it. But we do come boldly this morning, Father, because Jesus has made us worthy to do it. We thank you for all of the good things that you have given to us. We thank you for life and, and breath. We thank you, Lord, that this moment is a gift that you have given, and we ask in Jesus' name that we would be wise with our time. That we would be wise as we steward our souls, as we think not just to life here on this side of the sun, but, but life eternal. And we thank you, Father, that that you've given us through the death of Jesus, your Son, through his resurrection from the grave. You've given us your Spirit, your very self, to indwell us and to walk through life, through thick and thin. And uh, Lord, we pray now, uh, I I lift up my my good friend Jesse, his four children. Be to them, Father, an ever-present help in time of need. And uh, Lord, we, uh, we ask now for our own hearts as we turn our attention to your word. Oh, how we need your help. Lord, would you guard us from error and guide us in your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we should remember what we've just heard. As Benjamin was reading from Psalm 19, we heard that God's word is good Oh, it's good. His law is perfect. His precepts are right. God's commandment is pure. His, his rules are true and altogether righteous. More desirable than gold. Sweeter than honey. You believe that this morning? God's word and God's ways are good. And we're 
You're going to need to anchor ourselves in that truth this morning. We're going to need to remember God's goodness, the truth, and the veracity of His words as, as we listen to Jesus. To Jesus, you know, the Word made flesh as He pronounces some hard words. Some hard words as he sees and points to what he calls in our text this morning, abomination. As Jesus sees and pronounces what he calls in this passage this morning, adultery. So we would do well to pray as, as David prayed. To position ourselves as, as he did. And say as we approach our passage of scripture this morning, Lord, may the, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of my heart be, be acceptable, be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. He's true, and his word is right. So let's, let's turn there now, Luke 16. We'll be picking up where we left off last time, Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 14, and we'll just be reading a small snippet this morning, uh, verses 14 to 18. If you're using the church Bible in the seat back in front of you, that's on page 822, Luke 16, beginning in verse 14. Let's read now. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him, ridiculed Jesus. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery." This is God's Word to us, His people. If you are new to us here at FCC, uh, you can probably tell that we don't pick our sermon texts based upon our personal interests. I wasn't uh, hunting for a passage to preach on this week and decide, oh, you know, I'll, I'll just preach on divorce and remarriage. I'll just preach on what Jesus calls abomination. That sounds... That sounds fun. Now here at FCC, we are committed to what we call expository teaching of God's Word. We believe that God's Word is eternal and it is our final authority for all life and living. So, so my job here is not to entertain you. My job here today is not to wow you with, any, with some sort of scintillating speech. It's just to, to hold God's Word and turn it upside down and say, Lord, help me to faithfully repeat what you've said. Your people need your truth. We need God's truth this morning. And here it comes in Luke chapter 16. 
wonder if any of you have ever heard of that expression, to, to turn your nose up. You heard of that one, show of hands, to, to turn your nose up at something? Well, that's how our passage begins today, with sneering and scorn. Look at verse 14, if you would. The Pharisees, who loved money, were scoffing at Jesus. They were ridiculing Jesus. They were literally, the word means from Greek to English, turning up their noses at him. You see, in this day, it was commonly believed that wealth, material blessings, were a sign of God's favor on someone's life. And so here comes this itinerant, poor preacher, Jesus, He's being followed by hordes of poor and lame, by the outcasts of society. And here this teacher is presuming to tell the religious establishment, the elites, who see their wealth and positions of prominence among God's people as a sign of God's blessing and favor. And he presumes to tell them how to handle their money. I mean, he literally just told them, if you look at the verse preceding where we read today, he just finished telling them, you cannot serve both God and mammon. You can't serve God and money and your material possessions. And these guys are just incredulous. It's as if they're saying, money? What do you know about money? Meanwhile, Jesus is about to tell him a parable. We'll get here next week, Lord willing, a parable about a rich man and a poor man. And the rich man ends up in torment in hell. And it's the poor man who's seated in paradise at Abraham's side, the rich man and Lazarus. That's a, that's a fun one uh, to preach, but we'll save next week's sermon for, for next week. So we ask ourselves, what's Jesus' response then to the scoffing Pharisees, to these money-loving Pharisees? Verse 15 tells us, Jesus says to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men. Translation, you might have pulled the wool over their eyes, men's eyes, but God... He sees through your ruse. God will not be mocked, and He knows your hearts. Which is an interesting phrase, isn't it? God knows your hearts. That's what Jesus says. Especially when we think about the, word, uh, the word, way that phrase is uh, used today most often. I mean, have you ever met someone who's trying to justify their sin? You know what they often say? okay. God, God knows my heart. That people look me right in the eyes and tell me that. Well, well I know that what I'm trying to do here, uh, the, the Bible speaks plainly against it as a sin, but you know, God knows my heart. Yep. You bet He does. Which is why He tells us in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? Which, as an aside, it's not uh, the driving thrust of our passage today, but I'll, I'll just remind you to be leery, dear Christians, of Walt Disney theology, of a philosophy of heart and of mind, which essentially says, follow your heart, be true to yourself. That's 
the best thing you can do in life. Well, your Bible just told you that's a dumpster fire of an idea. Don't follow your heart. Follow your God and His truth. Design your life. Build your life around His ways, His principles. They are right and true and good. This is the natural disposition, though, is it not, of the human heart? Our default position is to justify ourselves, to justify our actions and our behaviors. And here's people, right here in Luke chapter 16, who are doing that very thing. The same thing that we do, seeking to justify themselves. So Jesus uses that line, God knows your hearts, and it's not a compliment. Just keep reading at the end of verse 15, and ask yourself, with your Bibles open, what's God's assessment of their self-justifying ways? Well, one word answer, and the word is abomination. That's God's word for man's self-justifying posture. Abomination, that's what God calls it. Now that word is hopefully not one you use like daily. That word abomination means, in the original Greek language that the Bible was written in, something that's detestable, something that's abhorrent. So what's the point? Well, it's very plain, isn't it? God The omniscient Lord of heaven and earth, whose eyes see all, whose word pierces through to the heart to judge its very thoughts and intentions. God is going to judge them, these Pharisees here in Luke 16, with a perfect judgment. They'll be weighed on the scales and found lacking. And friends, so will all who presume to justify themselves before a holy and perfect God. You can't do it. I think one of the most clear pictures in all of Scripture, certainly one of my favorites of this posture of self-justification and its folly, comes in just a few chapters in Luke 18. Jesus tells a, a, a brief parable about two men coming to pray at the temple. There's a Pharisee. Sound familiar? And there's a tax collector. We read a lot about them too as we've been working through Luke's Gospel. And the Pharisee puffs up his self-righteous chest and prays before the Lord, Lord, thank You that I'm not like them. Meanwhile, the tax collector who gets it, who sees his sin for what it is, beats his chest, can't even look up at the, at the heavens and says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, guess who? Guess who leaves justified before God? Well, it's not the guy who justified himself. It's the guy who came to God for mercy. That's Christianity. Is Lord, I, I can't, no matter how good I am, or no matter how good my righteous deeds stack up next to all the people around me. 
No matter how I compare or norm reference with the rest of my family or the rest of society, I cannot stand a sinner like me in your holy presence. No man, no no woman, no child, no soul that has ever lived has been able to justify themselves before a perfect and holy God. And you know it, don't you? You know it. Deep down in your hearts, you know that a perfect creator has made you and will one day judge you. You will stand before him guilty for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So then, seeking to justify yourself is a fool's errand. It's if I can put it this way, soul suicide. The only hope we have is that the righteous judge of all would have mercy upon us. And the reason why you're here today, the reason why I'm here today, is because He has. Jesus, the one who's delivering the scathing rebuke of self-righteousness, the one who points at at man's puffed-up self-righteousness and calls it an abomination, is the one who's walking. He's making his way to Jerusalem. His, His gaze is fixed upon the cross. And he knows what he's going to do. He's going to offer up his life as a ransom for your sin. Paul says it this way in Romans. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, not justified by ourselves, not justified by all of the the good deeds we've tried to earn to, to curry God's favor, no, justified by faith, we have peace with God. How? Through Jesus Christ our Lord. All right, let's keep tracking. Look at look at verse 16, if you will, with me. Luke 16, 16. Easy to find, easy to remember. Jesus said, the law and the prophets were until John. Who's he talking about? John the baptizer. John John the Baptist. Since then, since John, the good news of the kingdom has been preached and everyone forces his way into it. What's Jesus getting at here? Well, he's talking about, he's, he's... He's addressing what he calls the law and the prophets, which is simply Bible speak for all of redemptive history. The law and the prophets is another way of saying the scriptures, the Old Testament corpus. So so Jesus is saying up until now, all of redemptive history to this point, everything up to and including John the Baptist's ministry, what we would call today the Old Testament, by the way, John was this interesting, fascinating, transitional character. He was the last great Old Testament prophet. And yet he's operating as a fulcrum, as it were, right on the cusp between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. He was the forerunner to the Messiah. And we've seen a lot. We, we've talked a lot about John at the beginning of Luke's Gospel. We won't rehash all that now. He was sent simply to prepare the way ahead for the Messiah. 
And at the, at the climactic moment of John's ministry, he sees Jesus coming to him. Not just the climactic moment of John's ministry, dare I say, the climactic moment of human history up to this point. He points to Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1.29 Jesus says, Since, since then... Since John and his ministry, the kingdom of God has been preached, and this is, whew, everyone forces his way into it. Now, admittedly, this phrase is a notorious difficult, uh, notoriously excuse me, difficult phrase to translate from the Greek to the English. Many of your translations may say something a little bit different here. You think it's hard to translate from the biblical Greek into the English. Good luck finding an agreement on what it actually means. I've just spent hours this week pouring over this. And my confession is it's about as clear as mud to me. The question is, here in Luke 16, 16 how should we translate that verb to force into? In the original language, again, that the Koine Greek language that the Bible, or the New Testament at least, was written in, the, work it, uh, the word here is biatso. And it's written in a tense that can be translated in a variety of different ways. That's what makes it so hard to interpret. So some people reading this word, reading this passage, some Bible scholars take this to mean everyone who hears the message of the kingdom, is eagerly pressing their way into it. Kind of like how we've seen, right? These throngs of people surrounding Jesus, trampling on each other to get to Jesus almost. Like that guy, the guy's plural, who tear a hole in some guy's roof to lower down their, their paralytic friend to be before Jesus. What are they doing? They're pressing their way into the kingdom. Like the woman who presses through the crowd just to touch the hem of his garment. Maybe it means that. Eagerly pressing into the kingdom. Or, or some say, no, that verb probably means everyone is forcefully compelled. They're forcefully urged by the message of the gospel to come forward. Others say, no, 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 that's not it. Jesus is describing more. This, this force is a violent force. Jesus is describing here a force of opposition, of resistance to the kingdom, like the parallel passage seems to say in Matthew eleven twelve, where Jesus says in Matthew's gospel, from the days of John the Baptist till now, same context, John the Baptist, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. So you're looking at me like, all right, Zeb, tell us what it means. Is it okay for your pastor to say occasionally, guys, I, I, I'm not sure exactly which way to take this. And I would exhort you, I would encourage you to do the same thing that I have to do as a follower of Jesus. With your Bibles open, praying humbly before the Lord, continue to ask, Lord, would you show me? Would you guide me into your truth? If you've got some ideas about this, I'm, I'm all ears. And, and if you'd like to explore this translation further, what's it mean that everyone forces their way into the kingdom? 
Clearly, it doesn't mean you can earn your way into the kingdom by force. That's not the gospel that Jesus consistently speaks. But if you want some more resources to dig into this, uh, I'd be happy to give them to you offline. Uh, Daryl Bach, one biblical commentator, is particularly helpful in summarizing some of the more common interpretations of this view. So, uh, so I've got some stuff if you want to read, and, and maybe we can continue to talk and pray through this together. Um, the rest of you here are like, would you just keep moving? <laughs> we get it. You don't know. So, so here's the good news, I hope. In verse 17, whatever Jesus means prior to that by forcing your way into the kingdom, he really does make his bigger point, his more overarching point, crystal clear. Look at it here in verse 17. This is the punchline to this particular passage. Jesus says, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away and for one dot of the law to become void. In other words... The physical cosmos, the heavens and the earth that you are standing on and under are more disposable, if you will, like paper plates. They're more fleeting than the slightest, most insignificant stroke of the the pen in God's word, God's law specifically. Does it make sense then? That Jesus himself would say elsewhere in Matthew's gospel, do not think then that I've come to abolish the law. Uh Uh-uh. I've not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. And he repeats like he does here in Luke 16. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. You see it? Jesus did not come. As he's ushering in the kingdom of heaven, he did not come to eviscerate the law. He didn't come to do away with it. It hasn't disappeared. Jesus came to fulfill the law. There's a difference. So we don't as some too big for their britches Bible teachers will tell you today, we don't unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. We don't ignore the Old Covenant. We don't discard it. Because when we look to the Law and the Prophets, we see it screaming Jesus' name. We see it highlighting in neon the person and the work of Christ. It was there to look ahead to the Savior. He embodies it. He fulfills it. It shows us like a tutor, like a schoolmaster, our desperate need for salvation because we can't do what these Pharisees here in Luke 16 are trying to do. We can't justify ourselves. We can't keep the law. Thankfully, a holy God who condescended onto the earth and took on flesh, and who kept the law perfectly, Jesus, God the Son, is very good at keeping His law. It's the same Jesus, I'll simply remind you, who said not only about the law, but about His own words. Heaven and earth will pass away, 
Matthew 24, 35, but my words will not pass away. Apparently, Jesus thinks the law, as Benjamin read to us earlier, is good. That it's pure and clean and altogether righteous. So that David and the psalmist can, can extol, oh, how I love your law. Although we fall short, we love the law keeper. And we agree with God eternally that Jesus the fulfillment of the law, our salvation is good. Speaking of God's enduring law, Jesus shifts here, or perhaps zooms in, would be another way to say it, in verse 18, to another key area of life, one that touches almost all of us. An area of life and faith where people in His day and people in this day are all twisted up. It's the issue of marriage. This one's a hard one, isn't it, folks? You see, in Deuteronomy, the law, Deuteronomy 24, the, the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, had included a stipulation for writing what Moses called a certificate of divorce. So, go figure. Then, in Jesus' day, just as now, there was a debate between liberal and conservative factions as to what exactly constituted grounds for divorce in, in the Mosaic Law. You got guys like Rabbi Hillel. The Hillel school taught that uh, a very broad and, and, and liberal view of interpreting the Old Testament law as it related to marriage and divorce. And, and Hillel said... Yeah, pick your thing. If she burns your dinner, divorce. Not making it up. That's the, literally the example he gives. Good old Hillel. There were other rabbis who said all sorts of different things. And another one, the, the more conservative faction, was Rabbi Shammai. And Shammai, although um, much more straight-laced than Hillel, still would count any number of items of indecency as proper for pursuing a divorce according to the Mosaic Law. Let's say your wife walked out with her arms uncovered. Or her hair disheveled. Shemai says, game on. Get out that certificate of divorce. You've got the right. What's Jesus doing? What Jesus is doing, what Jesus always does. He is walking this sod, and He is rightly interpreting, rightly modeling and interpreting for God's screwed up people what the law of God is and does. He says to Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shammai and Rabbi fill in the blank, y'all are all wet. And this is His interpretation of marriage and the law of marriage, the covenant of marriage before God. Jesus is helping us to see 
the biblical principle that God laid down from creation. And here's what he said. Let's read it again. This is important. It's important to Jesus. It needs to be important to us as Jesus' people. Everyone, he says, who divorces his wife and marries another commits, his word, not mine, commits adultery. And he who marries a divorced woman from her husband, or excuse me, marries a woman divorced from her husband, commits adultery. My friends, I want to I just pause here and recognize the human element. This is, I know, an extremely sensitive subject. So who better than the God of mercy, than Jesus, our Lord and Savior, to teach us in it? We start here, Luke 16, 8, uh, excuse me, Luke 16, 18, with Jesus' own words about marriage. And, and just as Jesus has said, his instruction here, verse 18, is true. This principle about marriage being intended by a holy and perfect God, given as a gift to one man and one woman for life. This is God's right gift to His people. We learn in the New Covenant, the New Testament, that in some mysterious way, the institution, the covenant of marriage, is intended to mirror, as it were, the gospel. Marriage is is intended to, to reflect Jesus, our heavenly bridegroom's relationship with His bride, the church. No wonder then that Jesus is serious about us getting this thing right. It's certainly not the case that what Jesus is highlighting here in Luke 16, 18 is the unforgivable sin. But, But before we move on, we have to agree with Christ. He is, excuse me, He is calling something sin here. Specifically, He says, it's the sin of adultery. So, let's break it down. What's what's the Savior saying here about uh, divorce and remarriage and and, and adultery? Well, well, the general principle really is not that difficult, is it, to understand? Jesus is clearly saying that to divorce your spouse and to marry another is, by definition, an act of adultery. Now, you're you're all being very polite. This does not mean that this one little verse contains all of Jesus' teaching on the topic of divorce and remarriage. The Bible, the whole counsel of God's true and eternal one has much more to say about it. So, So what do we make of this here? We're going to see, I hope you see soon, that there are biblical grounds for this happening. Your Bible gives scenarios that that say this was not the ideal, but this is biblically permissible. And some of you, I think hopefully all of us, are listening to my words saying, "Wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. How do you know that, Zeb? Because Luke 16, 18 
golly, that seems pretty black and white. If anyone divorces his wife and, and marries another, that's tantamount to adultery. How, how do you know that there's biblical grounds for divorce? Well, friends, because I read my Bible and so should you. We see over and over and over in Scripture the Lord of truth handing us, revealing to us His truth. But every time God gives us a nugget of truth, He is not duty-bound to tell us the whole story about everything that has to do with that truth. The best interpreter for Scripture, when it's hard or difficult to understand, is what? It's more Scripture. It's all true, and it, and it syncs up together. So, does God's Word say elsewhere other things about this issue of divorce and remarriage? You betcha. And by the way, this happens all the time in Scripture. Let me give you a for instance, just to kind of remove some of the tension if I can. This is about marriage too. A biblical principle for marriage. Thank you, Logan, for, for getting that. I, I like got him that, uh, that little chart at the last minute. I appreciate that. I hope this helps. Here's another principle for marriage. It's good. Marriage is a good gift that God gives to His people. So we see the biblical principle here in the upper left-hand corner. Proverbs 8, 22. He who finds a wife finds what? A good thing. Why? Because God's truth is marriage is good. But, but wait a minute. In that same book, the book of Proverbs, we get this verse, the second one. Proverbs 21.9. It's better for you to live on a corner of a rooftop than to share a house with a quarrelsome wife. So which is it? He who finds a wife finds a good thing, or go get some sun, brother. <laughs> Apparently, this guy in the second scenario did not find a very good thing. So is God's word false? Is there some inconsistency in Scripture? No. The Bible is rolling out to us a, a principle for life and living. And the principle is marriage is a good gift given by God to His children. But it does not follow that there are not, no exceptions ever to this rule. Sometimes, because of our sin-stained world, marriage ends up being a bit of a train wreck. Now, look at this last one. We see both the principle, and the exception. And yet another verse, guess where? Same book. Proverbs. An excellent wife is like a crown for her husband. But a not-so-excellent wife, a shameful one, is like rottenness to his bones. You see what, we're, see what we're laying down here? The, it's possible for the Bible to lay out a principle, a truth to live by, and yet for exceptions to the rule to be explained and detailed elsewhere in Scripture. One more, just, just by way of example, we're just constantly hearing about the Sabbath here in Luke's Gospel. Take, take this one, for instance. Here's a principle, it's the fourth commandment. <laughs> Honor the Sabbath day. Keep it holy before God. Don't do any work on the Sabbath day. I'm just going to read to you from Exodus 35, 2. Six days 
Work shall be done. But on the seventh day, you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. Is God serious about the Sabbath? Uh Uh-huh. But then Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 5, Have you not read in the law on the Sabbath how the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? What's Jesus saying? There's a principle of Sabbath rest that God has given to His people. But there's an exception. The priests need to work on the Sabbath. And God gets that. And God has provided for that. So do you see here where we're going? Just like, by the way, Friendship Community Church, just like how Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, and when He steps on the scene, He takes our stuffy Sabbath rules, how we're all bent out of shape regarding the Sabbath, and He sets it straight and we say, Yes, Jesus, you go, Jesus, fix them on the Sabbath. He's doing the same thing here with marriage, isn't He? Jesus, who is the bridegroom. Jesus, who is the one who's going to have a wedding feast. The wedding supper of the Lamb is here. And He's saying... Let me set you straight on marriage, and there is no one better to do it. No one better to do it. Now, the principle, see the principle. Marriage is intended to be a lifelong commitment before the Lord. And to break that covenant union and to to join with another, Jesus' word for that is adultery. That's the principle. And yet, friends, there are, there are in Scripture exceptions to this rule. And I want to be fair. There are other very faithful Bible teachers and, and commentators who would disagree with me. Who, who, they would disagree with us here at Friendship Community Church on this point. I'll just name two of them. I, I love these men in the Lord. Never met them, but they're like examples to me. Men like John Piper. Men like Vody Bauckham who as they read and interpret Scripture, do not see any exceptions to the rule here that divorce and remarriage is adultery. Respectfully, we disagree. I I disagree. (laughs) As do the elders here at Friendship Community Church. We, we, We see what we believe in Scripture to be very clearly outlined, two exceptions to the divorce and remarriage being adultery principle. The first is this. And if you're taking notes, you can just write down this reference, Matthew 5, 31 and 32. Jesus' word for it is sexual immorality. Jesus speaking here, he says, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. He's quoting from Deuteronomy 24. But I say to you, you paying attention? This is Jesus, the law keeper, the law fulfiller. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery here. The word here, the exception here, Jesus calls it sexual immorality. That's the English word. The Greek word is porneia. 
Use your imagination. You can guess where we get that root word from. Porneia is an umbrella term for any type of sexual sin, any type of sexual immorality. And Jesus repeats this same exception clause again in Matthew chapter 19, Matthew 19, 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, except for porneia, and marries another, commits adultery. Jesus' principle still stands, but there's an exception. If the fabric of the covenant union has been fractured because of sexual sin, sexual immorality, that's a situation where Jesus says adultery is is not in play. You can biblically pursue a divorce in that case. doesn't mean you have to. By by God's grace, our our counsel here at FCC would be uh, let the gospel work, extend forgiveness, pursue uh, biblical counseling and forgiveness, reconciliation together. But, But Jesus' words are quite clear, we believe. Matthew 5, Matthew 19, there is an exception to this rule. There's there's one more given to us, we believe in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15. Jesus is writing to the church, or excuse me, Jesus is ultimately, uh, the triune God is writing, but the, the Holy Spirit of God is inspiring Paul to write to the Corinth, uh, the church at Corinth, the Corinthians, and he's explaining about a, a, a growing trend and a problem. People who are hearing the gospel are actually believing it. Praise God. And in families that had formerly not known God, not served the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, now all of a sudden you have a believer who's heard the gospel and and, and is following Jesus and a non-believer. And some of those folks are saying, man, we're just moving in different directions. Should should I divorce my unbelieving spouse? Paul's uh, comment here is clear. If, If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. That word can mean not bound. God has called you to peace. So this is a very complicated and sensitive issue. We're just trying to scratch the surface here and say, Jesus' principle is clear. God hates divorce. Divorce is intended to be a picture, a mirror image of the gospel Do not fracture that bond. Jesus' words, what God has joined together, let not man separate. This is what he's saying. To do so is, as a general rule, adultery. And yet there are exceptions. You are free. We believe at FCC to marry in the Lord. You are no longer bound to that fractured relationship in those exception cases. Again, a lot of A lot of significant questions arise here. I'll just pause here before we hit some application and then observe the Lord's Supper here just to say, if you're here today and your your spirit is just churning and you've got questions, know that you're in the right place. Jesus came, His words, to save sinners. The gospel, as we've been saying recently here at FCC, and heaven, eternal life, is not for good people. It's for saved people. 
Not for all the people who are self-righteous, who have kept the law good enough. It's for people who love Jesus and, and have been washed by His blood, whose sins have been forgiven. And if you've got questions, first of all, if you need prayer after the service today, our elders will be up front. We would love to talk and pray with you more about this. If you've got questions, we'd love to talk as well. All right, let's get to some application. What do we do? We're like reeling after these uh, brief verses here in the middle of Luke 16. How can we be doers of this word, not just hearers only? Here's, here's the first thing, friends. Let's just emphasize. Let's be people who emphasize what Jesus emphasizes. Sometimes we hear of exceptions, and what are we prone to do? We're prone to run to the exception. We're prone to apply the exception. Our emphasis should be Jesus' emphasis, which is marriage is God's gift. Don't break that bond. What man has joined together, let not, uh, God has joined together, excuse me, let not man separate. When, when Abraham sent his faithful servant, we've been studying the book of Genesis on Wednesday evenings, when he sent his faithful servant uh, back to his homeland to find a wife for his son, the son of the promise, Isaac. He, he made his servant vow to go find a wife for him there. But this was like a long journey. It was a pretty tall order. And so the servant rightfully says, so uh, what if it doesn't work? <laughs> right? What if she doesn't come back? With, what if I find someone or don't find someone and I, I, I don't bring anybody back? And Abraham gave an exception to his charge. And you'll be released from my vow. You know what the servant did not do? The servant didn't like, whatever, if I find her, I find her. And that guy was after it. Go reread Genesis 24. It's beautiful. What a beautiful picture of what a faithful servant does. What does a faithful servant do? A faithful servant does not go hunting and seeking exceptions to get around God's charge or God's design, a faithful servant zealously seeks to observe the charge of his or her master. So for most of us here today, Friendship Community Church, Jesus' words and Jesus' design for you is stay in it. Don't go grasping for an exception. Let the gospel work. Observe the principle. And for those here today, Please hear me. Please hear me. Who are feeling a lot of competing emotions right now. Because perhaps you've been here and you're hearing the words of Jesus and you're just saying, I, I don't even know. Or you're saying, guilty. Or you're saying, maybe I don't belong at a place like this because they're going to make me wear this scarlet letter. Because I have... I've blown it here. Friends, this is not the unforgivable sin. And the interesting thing about the sin of adultery, which Jesus calls this, is that you deal with this sin the same way you deal with all sin. You bring it to the cross. And you let the grace, the sacrifice of a perfect Savior who traded His righteousness for our guilt and sin and shame on the cross. That's the way you deal with this sin. So have you blown it? Join the club. 
We've all sinned. I was talking to Bill Chapel, one of our elders here. We're discussing this text, and I was just so nervous <laughs> preparing for this weekend's sermon. And he said, this is such a good reminder for me. Yeah, remember how Jesus says in Matthew 5, whoever looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And I was like, whoa. I went and looked. Go figure. The same word that Jesus uses, adultery here in Matthew, or excuse me, Luke 16, 18, is the word for adultery when you're nursing it in your mind. Same word. Same sin. It's made of the same stuff. Friend, if you're here today and you are too proud to hear Jesus Christ tell you that you're a sinner, then you'll be too proud to hear His gospel. Do not be offended on account of Him. The truth is that this room is filled with adulterers. This room is filled with fornicators. This room is filled with idolaters. This room is filled with drunkards and gluttons and thieves and revilers and swindlers. And the pronouncement of the gospel is, such were some of you. And those who stand forgiven by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ are washed. 1 Corinthians 6 are sanctified, are justified, not because they say, well, it's just the best I could do. What do you do? No, they're justified because we come to a Savior who has forgiven. And as we prepare to receive the bread and the cup today, I just want to give you the example of a woman, perhaps more than any other in Scripture, arguably more than any other in Scripture, who was fractured on this. Jesus stepped up to a well in Samaria in John chapter 4, and he encountered a Samaritan woman. She was there at a different time of day than most people would come to avoid, probably, scorn and accusations and sneering and and Jesus asked her, where's your husband? She says to him, I don't, I don't got a husband. The Lord's answer was, you're right. You've had five of them. And your live-in boyfriend right now, he's not your husband. And you know what Jesus did to that woman? He told her, he extended to her what he called living water. He told her, she said, I'll understand all of this when the Messiah comes. He said, I who am speaking to you am, she, am He. Jesus and His posture toward this woman whose life was a train wreck with regard to marriage and adultery and sexual sin had nothing but grace and forgiveness available for her. So here today, as we approach the table, I just want to give you that reminder, and I want to invite up our, our elders as we sit quietly before the God of heaven and earth 
and do some business with him. You are not saved because you've been good enough. You are not set set apart for heaven's glory and joy because you can justify your deeds and look really nice sitting here at FCC on a Sunday morning. You are saved because Jesus Christ loved you and gave His life as a ransom for you. On the night He was betrayed, He took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke the bread and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.